Awesome. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, that's two for two. I feel great when like I say something like that, good morning, and there's response because that means you guys are awake and alive, I think excited, right, for the year 2022. Um, like Pastor Day said, I'm Ben. I'm the Multiplication Networking Pastor here at Grace Point Church. I'm excited to share the word with you today. Just pumped to worship with you all this morning. Thank you guys for being here. Excited to jump into Revelation, the, the, the letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Aaron, who had a conversation with Pastor Steve, came to me and asked, hey, would you want to preach January 2nd? And I haven't preached on a Sunday morning, and I thought, oh, it's got to be like a one-off message, right? Like something that just, okay, come and just encourage, new year, new thing. And I go, what, what are we talking about? What, what's the message that morning? And he says, revelation. So talking about just getting thrown into the fire. <laughs> Pun a little intended. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm excited to share with you what God's been doing in my, in my heart and soul this last week. Um, it's hard to start off with I think Revelation for me, because I just want to give you a ton of information, especially just the background of the book, uh, just backgrounds of different things. How do we have a posture of what it looks like to read Revelation and entering into this thing? And I'm going to give you a little bit of that, not as much as I desire, because I think this God has something that he desires to do, not just this morning, but every time we gather. He is speaking and has already been speaking. The Holy Spirit has been moving in our midst. He was moving before we walked into the church. And so just as we continue in worship today, Let's have that just posture of worship to receive. And that's how kind of I take my own, like just self, my disposition as I enter into Revelation and read this, this last letter, this last book of the Bible, as I look at it and I see worship because it highly lifts up Jesus. It is a Christ-centered letter. And yes, there's a lot of imagery and vision stuff and, and some really awesome things and, and, and all of it. I see an incredible letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor, emphasizing and focusing on Jesus. And so a little bit of background, <clears throat> Revelation, right? Last letter of the, old, of, of the Bible, of the New Testament. And it was given uh, as a revelation from Jesus to John, who was the apostle, the, the, the disciple that Jesus had loved. And John was old. This letter was most likely written around 95, 96 AD, so 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And he just, he wouldn't die, and that sounds aggressive, but just hear me out. All the other apostles had died for their faith, right? I mean, they, they, had, they had been killed and persecuted for, for proclaiming a name and, and, and talking about Jesus. And John, in his old age, he just wouldn't die. So the emperor of Rome at the time was so frustrated that he exiled the apostle John to the island of Pamos, which is just, just an island they would send people that they just kind of didn't want to deal with. So he gets to this island, he's exiled, he's ba and basically a prisoner, and the revelation of Jesus comes to him. Jesus comes before him and speaks these words. And in chapter 119, he says, John, I want you to write down everything that you see, what is happening right now and what is to come. So what's happening now and what is to come, what we will enter in over the next five weeks is we're looking at seven churches that Jesus is addressing and talking to about the right now. So 95, 96 AD, here's what's happening. Jesus says, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm going to challenge you in. Here's where you need to move forward. Here's how to move forward. He celebrates some of the churches and gives them commendation. And in, in most of the churches and some of them as well, he gives them hard, hard like challenge. And hey, here's where you've missed the mark. But it doesn't just end it there. He gives them counsel. So here's what you need to do. Here's how to move forward. 
So this morning, I get to start with the first letter, um, or to first church, I should say, to the church of Ephesus, a letter to Ephesus. And when I think about this, Revelation is known as an end times book, right? It, it, it's known as, associated sometimes with Daniel, it's like, okay, you want to know what's going to happen at the end of the world when Jesus comes back? I was like, read Revelation. And I think when I, for myself, when I take that posture, I'm trying to find things necessarily that aren't there. And so to take a posture of worship when we enter into Revelation, it's not so much focusing on the last things, the last things, the end times, but it's focusing on the one who is the first and the last. It's focusing on him whose name is Jesus, who's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So if you open up your word, if you got the Bible, we're going to open it up to Revelation 2. We're going to read chapters 1 through 7. If you got your phone, open up the Bible app because it's on there. And that's what's great about technology is we get to read the word at any time. So let's read this together. This is Revelation 2, 1 through 7. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so we get this letter to Ephesus, to this church, this gathering of followers of Jesus in this city. And a little background about Ephesus. Ephesus, at this time, was most likely like the third largest city in the Roman province. And so the seven churches are in, in Asia Minor. That was just one aspect of the entire Roman province. And so the Rome, Rome was in control. They seized this, and they were, they were overhead of, of, of these seven cities. And Ephesus was the largest one, most likely around 250,000 people. They were a port city. They had high economic wealth and status. There was a diversity of tribe and race and tongue and nations. There was a diversity of religion and faith. Up to maybe 50 gods or goddesses were worshipped in Ephesus. Ephesus was even at this time an asylum city, like a city for, for refugees to come and, and honestly feel safe where you could come and it didn't matter what language you spoke or the color of your skin or even the faith that you had come and feel safe. You can worship there. And so Ephesus saw a lot of success. And because of that, the church in Ephesus also saw a lot of success. And so Paul started this church, the Apostle Paul, we read that in Acts. Timothy, who was Paul's disciple, is the one who's leading and pastoring this church at some time. And, and most likely this church is one who had seen success in ministry. Disciples being made. Large gathering, Jesus being worshipped, most likely, I mean, miracles performed, the word of God preached and taught and people being encouraged. They saw most likely not just numbers grow, but this, like people coming to faith in Jesus. And yet over time, slowly, something happens. And we see here Jesus addressing the church because he wants to stop them from spiraling completely out of control, from going down a path that he doesn't desire for them. And so that's what we get is this big issue in the church of Ephesus is that they've forsaken their first love. Along the path, along the road, at some point they had lost what first they had, a love that they had had at first. And a lot of different commentaries talk about how this love is a love of God and, and of Jesus. It's a love of neighbor, of brother and sisters in Christ. And it's a love of people who are outside the church. 
And then throughout this message and what I'm going to talk about, it's, we're going to talk about that same thing. To forsake the love you have at first is to forsake the ultimate love of the first commandment that Jesus gives us, or the greatest commandment, I should say. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so as I think about this, like, what happened, or most likely happened, and I think about what has happened in my life to get me down a path of potentially losing or forsaking my first love, of missing the mark and prioritizing the things that I need to prioritize. And I think there's something that happens to each of us where we get tempted that things happen and, and we go down a progressive path that leads to a forsaking of first love. It's not an instant. It's not just one day all of a sudden the church is like, all right, we're just gonna not do the things we did at first. Like we're just gonna start doing something different. A forsaking or losing of our first love is not an instantaneous thing. It's progressive. That's just a reality. Addiction, like when people struggle with addiction, that's not something that just happens overnight. It's a progressive thing. When relationships start to like crumble and crack and they're on the brink of, and marriage is on the brink of just being destroyed, that's not an instant thing. There's little moments that have happened throughout time. Decisions may be made day after day that led to this moment. And so in our faith, like what are things that could potentially happen for us to get here? I think, and here's some things that, this is not like a, holistic list. This is just things that I know I've been tempted with. One, I think to get us on a path, a progressive path of forsaking our first love is we care more about knowing about God than actually knowing him. Like we care more about knowledge than intimacy. And it's in that point where our relationship with Jesus doesn't become about love or holiness or connection with him. It becomes how much can I know? And therefore knowledge replaces holiness. That gets dangerous. It's not bad to know things about God, right? Like we should want to, again, we're reading scripture and we're, we're learning things, but that's an aspect of our relationship with him. Another thing that I think happens is we tend to view the world as an enemy instead of an opportunity. And I'll expound on that. I, I've, I have three kids. My oldest son, Wesley, he's seven years old. He's in first grade. He goes to, uh, to Dakota Prairie. He's got incredible, he's had incredible teachers last year. Like super smart. The kid is a genius. I, I, he gets it from his mom without a doubt. And he comes home and he's saying things to me that like he hears at school, like as a seven-year-old that I didn't hear or learn until I was like 23. And I'm thinking like, what is happening in the school? Like what is going on in this world that is so crazy? And I'm just like having conversations with him that I never found I have, have with him at this age. And so my temptation is to think, man, I just, how do I protect him? Right? Like how do I, how do I keep him from engaging in these things or learning this thing? And I think now every time I send him somewhere, school or a neighbor or some whatever, it's I think I get tempted to think, okay, I'm sending him into enemy territory. And then I get tempted, like, I don't want to do that. And so then all of a sudden I think of everything outside the church and everything outside of faith as an enemy. And that happens with people. And also I think people who don't know Jesus or who disagree with my doctrine or theology or what I believe about who Jesus is and who he says I am, all of a sudden they're the enemy. And I don't see people as made in the image of God. So I, I think this starts us down a path of forsaking our first love. Another thing that I think happens that we get tempted to do or, or tempted to fall into is we want to stay comfortable, right? Like we want to stay where we are and not move forward to where Jesus desires us to be. I, I am an eight on the Enneagram. I got a bold personality. I don't mind conflict, like, I, I, I'm okay with conflict. I'm not afraid of it. Like, no one likes it. No one likes conflict. I'm just not going to run away from it. 
And so there are moments where like, I am okay having really challenging conversations. Like more often than not, like, yeah, let's, let's talk about some hard things. Awesome, sweet. But then there are moments where I'm saying like, man, I just don't want to talk about hard things because I don't want other people to point out in me where I'm falling short. And so I want to stay where I'm at. I don't want to pursue and move forward to where Jesus desires me to pursue and move forward in love and in holiness. And ultimately what's happening is we're making decisions day after day that are prioritizing or loving someone or something more than our love for Jesus. So what Jesus is doing with the, this letter to Ephesus and this church, he's telling these things like, like I've, I've recognized you've done some things, man. Like I've recognized that you've persevered and you've been patient. And yes, you, you are, are standing up for truth, but this is what I have against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. And so the big idea is like, how do we maintain that love? Another way I want to phrase this is how do we return to the love we have at first? Return to Jesus. And there's three specific things I'm going to walk through and talk about and how I think we can maintain our love, first love or even return back to, for some of us, return back to our first love who is Jesus, to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. Number one, first thing. In verse five, he says, consider how far you have fallen. Another version says, remember how far we've fallen. Remember where you've come from. Remember where you have come from. That's Revelation 2, verse 5. So just consider it. So point number one in maintaining our first love. We need to remember whose and who we are. We need to remember whose and who we are. I think back to the first time I gave my life to Jesus. I'm almost 19 years old. I am in the dorms on the SDSU campus. Uh, I come into college, no faith, not a lot of church background, never have read the Bible, have an assumption that God just doesn't care about what's happening in my life. And I get to campus and I get to the second floor, Pearson Hall, and there's these two kids who love Jesus. And from the moment I meet them, they're inviting me to come to church. Of course, so they invite, I say no, because I don't think it's a priority, I don't think it's important. They invite, I say no. And I think about this idea of remembering and consider how far you've fallen, remember where you've come from. And I think the first time I gave my life to Jesus, I never loved really Jesus more. Because I didn't know a lot. Right? I, I never read the Bible. I didn't have a theology or doctrine. I didn't have certain beliefs about who, how the church is supposed to operate or what's going to happen. Or I just knew how much I loved Jesus because here's what happened with me. They'd invite me to church. I'd say no. Right? One, one day, I get a phone call from my dad. He says, mom's going to rehab again. Your sister's moving out of the house. I'm, I'm away from home. I'm sitting and, and from what I'd known at the age of 12 until this moment, nearly 19 years old, is whenever anything like bad happened in our family, we would drink. So from 12 years old, that's how I coped. I found fulfillment in relationship and I coped when things were hard with drinking. And so I get this phone call and I'm in my dorm room and I sit on the futon because that's what you have in a dorm room. That's like required. And I sit there and I think, I just want to go forget. And if this thought then comes into my head, he said, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was for sure the Holy Spirit. And he said, Ben, you've been doing that for seven years and it hasn't helped. And so I just sat there and I didn't know what to do. I had no idea what to do. Faithful as they were every single week, Levi and Morgan come across the hall, knock on the door. They say, hey, Ben, we're going to church. Do you want to come? I remember them asking the question and I don't remember leaving the room. I don't remember the car ride over, but then all of a sudden I was in the church. 
I don't think they drugged me. Um, I'm fairly certain they didn't. The Holy Spirit had just taken over. Because there's a portion where of, of my life that I have zero memory of. But all of a sudden, I walk into the activity center where Oasis was meeting. And I hear a testimony of a guy who's just talking about his relationship with Jesus. And he, he, at the end, Pastor Rick Whiff, um, who was leading Oasis at the time, he asked Austin this question. And he said, like, is following Jesus worth it? And he talked about this reality. Well, for me, oh, life with Jesus hasn't necessarily become easier, but it's become better. Because Jesus desires to walk, not just walk with you, but carry your burden in life. And it just struck a chord in my soul. And I knew in that moment that I needed Jesus. Again, I didn't have a lot of theology, right? I didn't, I didn't know a lot of things about Christianity or faith or what it meant to follow Jesus. I just knew in that moment I needed him. And I started just doing, just going to church and, and yes, doing all these things, but I just wanted to love on Jesus because I knew he was with me and I knew he was for me. So I think back to that, remember who's and who you are. I think back, consider how far you've fallen. Consider, remember where you were at when you first gave your life to Jesus. When the clarity came and you came to an understanding of, wow, that's how much God loves me because of what Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection has done for me. And so in remembering who's and who we are, there's a few things that I think can help maintain our first love. Remembering who's and who we are. Remember who's we are, where Jesus is. And in chapter one, verse five, a whole chapter one of Revelation gives incredible description of who Jesus is. It says, it says, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by the blood. Later on in verse eight, he says, I'm the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who, is, who was, and who is to come. Jesus echoes that in verse 18 and 19 to John when he says, I am the first and the last, I am the living one. And so these five things that I think if we can come back and remember who Jesus really is, it helps us maintain and even return back to our first love, who is Jesus. One, he is the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness to who our God is. He's the faithful witness to the truth because he's the one who fully embodies grace and truth. Number two, He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. At this time, again, this city and these seven cities, these seven churches, they were underneath and under Roman law. So the emperor was their king. And so John is writing and reminding, hey, the buck doesn't stop with the Roman emperor. Jesus is the king of all of the other rulers of the earth. And don't forget it. The third, he's the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn of the dead. This is where we get our hope. This is where we see and realize that death is not the end because Jesus died for us on the cross for giving our sin, but didn't stay dead. He was risen through the power of God. And in being risen, we see now death is not the end. We have hope in a resurrection. He is redeemer. Talks about how he, is love, he loves us and he freed us from our sin. He's the lover and freer of souls. Because of our sin, where we've missed the mark, the things that we've done that have gone against God's desire for our life, a relationship with God has been separated. And so God, in his goodness, the Father, sent Jesus, who is God himself, down. And through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus made a way for us to get a restored and redeemed relationship back with God. He is Redeemer. And finally, he's Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last, the living one. This idea of Alpha and Omega, it's first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's not that Jesus has a beginning or has an end. It's a metaphor, some, an imagery to tell us that 
He who was in the beginning, he who created all things and all things that have a beginning and all things that had the end, Jesus is God in the midst of that. I love how Colossians talks about this reality that without Jesus, everything that has been made wouldn't be made. He is God, creator. And because that is who our king is, our savior is, we remember those things and we rest in those things and, and we, we worship him as, as those things, him as God. We can then also attain confidence in knowing who he says we are. And that's the theme of 2022. Our identity in Christ and our identity in this whole series, these next five weeks, looking at the churches in Revelation, it's helping us recognize and say, okay, who does God say we are as a church and how are we supposed to even now be obedient to what he's asking us as his body, as his bride, as a church? And so what I, I, I wanted to go a lot of different directions with this one, but I'm going to do this real quick. In Revelation 7, this gives us an image and a picture of what the church is, is going to be. It says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the picture of what the church is going to be like. And what's awesome, because we can trust in who Jesus is and who he says that we are, that's his desire for us right now. He brought the kingdom of God. Mark 1.15, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right now. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. We can experience again. We can experience this now. Which is why in the fourth century, when a bunch of different like heresies, which are false doctrines, false beliefs uh, about Christianity about who Jesus is started coming up. A lot of different church leaders and, 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 and disciples of Jesus came together and they met at this place called Nicaea. And they came up with this thing called the Nicene Creed. And they, over decades, they came and said, okay, what are, what are the beliefs of the church? And it unified the church in such a beautiful way. And we have this now Nicene Creed that we've been expressing and, and we uh, repeat and say in churches all throughout the world. But there's something that came out of that about how they describe what we believe the church is. Not what we want it to be, not what it one day will be, what it is right now. And this phrase was intentional and purposeful. They say, we believe the church is one holy Catholic apostolic church. So the church, first and foremost, is one. It's united. And it's united not in how we behave and act and us doing everything we can to make sure like we get along. That's incredibly important. But unity is actually a gift of God's grace because unity happens when we all together declare that we are under Jesus' lordship. We are unified because of who Jesus is. He says we're holy and this gives us idea of we are set apart. Pastor Steve last week talked about our desire for us to be sanctified through and through. And sanctification is this idea of being set apart. We, as the church, are holy. We are set apart to be a witness that displays to the world an alternative to the brokenness that people are living in. And I don't know about you guys, but anytime I try to pursue holiness on my own, I fail. Which is what's so beautiful about the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who does the sanctifying. He's the one who first has set us apart and made us holy and is continuing to help us be holy and become more like Jesus. It says the church is Catholic and this word just means universal. It's not associated with a denomination or any type of gatherings of church. It means the universal church and this is the beautiful picture of all tribes, all nations, all tongues, all races. Something I love about Oasis and having been the pastor there for a couple years and, and been in it 15 years ago now, 
is a lot of college students from a lot of different backgrounds and even a lot of different countries coming to worship King Jesus. It's a small little picture and a very minuscule picture of really what the church is and is going to be. The Catholic Universal Church says there's a table and everyone has a seat there and what we feast on are the good things of God. And Fly says we're apostolic. An apostolic gives this weight of authority and truth. In a world of lies, the apostolic church is a witness that tells the truth about God, proclaiming the good news of the grace of Jesus. Because the truth is not something that we manifest or we've come up with. The truth is a gift of grace from God given to us. And so we can come into a world that experiences brokenness, experiences pain and hurt, and we can reveal to them the truth, and the truth is Jesus. So we remember who's and who we are, and I think as we do that, it helps us return to Jesus to maintain that first love, but then it helps us recognize also what we're missing. So the second aspect of this is we need to repent for misplaced priorities. Verse five, he says, consider how far you've fallen, and then repent and do the things you did at first. So we repent from misplaced priorities. And repent is just simply this. It's a change of heart that results in a change of one's way of life. A change of heart. So it starts with our will. It starts with something happening as we've experienced the goodness and the kindness of God that all sounds like I'm recognizing I'm not living. I'm not doing the things that you desire for me to do. And so it's, I'm not just going to change some action steps, right? It's like, I'm not just going to have an action plan and then everything's going to be fine. It's, no, I'm going to change my, my, my disposition of who I am as a person. And instead of now living for myself, Jesus, I'm all in and running after you. I think there's a couple, two different aspects that I see of what we need to repent of, of some misplaced priorities I see in the church of Ephesus and some that I've struggled with. And I think the church as a whole, sometimes we just, we, we miss Number one is we need to repent of, rather than living a life solely for Jesus, we need to desire living a life with Jesus. Hear me on this. Rather than just living a life for Jesus, let us desire living a life with Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. There have been moments in my life that I have pursued following Christ, pursued my relationship with Jesus, where things have become a checklist where I've done things for him and I haven't recognized in the moment I get to live life with him because that's the call of discipleship. Us as followers of Jesus, it's not just now we're sitting here and our faith is one where we have to do things for God. That's legalism, right? Because it doesn't have any love in it. But he's invited us to live a life with him, to experience his goodness. And in that, he helps us become the persons ultimately he created us to be, the church he has created us to be. Matthew 7 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on the day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles, right, doing. We went to church, we prayed, we did miracles, right? We cast out demons. I was at church every Sunday. I went to small group. I did those things for you. And there's a miss there. Because there's a priority shift that didn't happen of you were actually invited into a relationship with him. And he says, get away from me because I didn't know you. You missed on what I actually just invited you into, a life with me to know me. It's intimacy. It's actually really beautiful. It's really beautiful. And I think a life doing things for Jesus should overflow from a life with Jesus because it does. It's I only can first love him and other people because he first loved me. 
and living a life with Jesus is resting and, and just sitting in the Father's heart for us. It's knowing who he says we are. It's lifting up and glorifying the name of Jesus. So we repent of living a life just solely for Jesus and now desiring living life with him. And the second thing I see is we need to prioritize in some way, especially when it comes to loving people and living life with each other inside the church and outside the church. We need to prioritize actually loving people instead of trying to change their minds. This one was a hard, this is a hard one for me. This one like hits home in my soul heavily. Like I said, I'm not afraid of conflict. The problem was growing up, we never argued well in my family. Like having disagreement and arguing wasn't about who was right. It was about who was loudest the longest. Anyone else ever experienced that? Like that's what it was. And so we're sitting at home and we have disagreements and like this is how I grew up. It, it was, and that, it didn't have to make sense. I didn't have to have any logic. I didn't have to even talk about a good argument. It was just, I'm gonna be louder than you and I'm just gonna go longer because eventually you're gonna quit and give up and that means I win. Super unhealthy. And then of course, because that's how I grew up, I brought that into our marriage. And for 11 years, we've been trying, trying to figure out how to have healthy conflict. But then I take this and I have this with, with other people. And this is how I fight and how I argue and how I have conversations. So I started seminary three years ago. I just graduated this, this last spring. And when I first started seminary, I had this disposition that like, I, I knew everything. Like you are not going to be able to convince me. Like if I have a conviction, especially when it came to my faith, like, no, this is what the Bible says. This is what is right, period. You ain't going to change my mind. And if you're wrong, I'm going to do everything I can to change your mind. Because all that mattered for me was being Right. That's it. And so when I would enter in these conversations with my sem other cohort and, my, and the students I was doing seminary with, we would have disagreements on theology. And, and a big one that came up is we would have a disagreement on marriage. Like our interpretations of scripture, they were different in what we believed marriage to be. And so I'm talking about, like, I think marriage is between a man and a wife, and they're talking like, no, like, you should be able to love it. And we're having this argument, and all I cared about was making sure that they changed their mind and they knew that I was right. And so I missed actually doing, I think, what God desired for me to do in these conversations. And it's not that I shouldn't stand up for truth and we shouldn't know what we believe. But there's a way that we go about some of these conversations and arguments and disagreements with people that I think is unbiblical because it's not loving. Because it's ultimately not really desiring God's best for them. Because when I had an assumption, when I was in a conversation with someone where they, I without a doubt thought they were wrong, it ultimately affected how I viewed them as a person. And I became abrasive and mean. And it was incredibly unhealthy and so unloving. Because that person, disagreement or not, is still made in the image of God. And so do I still stand up for truth? Absolutely. Do I know what I believe? Yes. But I do what Peter challenges us to do in the midst of some of these tough conversations. He says, 1 Peter 3, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have in Jesus. But how should we give that hope? How should we give that reason? with gentleness and respect. Because gentleness and respect says, I see you, I care for you, and we can still disagree. I think sometimes we just need to repent, stop caring about, cha caring about changing people's minds and just love them well. Desire God's best for them. It doesn't mean don't know, like have that conviction of what we believe. But man, we gotta start caring and loving for people. 
Last thing. So we remember who's and who we are, right? How we maintain and return to our first love who is Jesus. We repent of our misplaced priorities and misplaced priorities where we put other things above Jesus and now we're going to repent and turn back and now live in a life with him. We repent of how we've treated people and then he says in verse seven, and what I get from this is just this reality of we want to maintain and return, resting God's promises. Verse seven says this, whoever has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, resting in the promises of God brings peace in our circumstances now. So how hard life gets, the things that we're going through right now, as we rest in the promises of God, we can actually experience peace because this is something that Jesus told us we get to experience, especially when we return to him and maintain our first love, which is him. John 16, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. See, in the world, you're gonna have trouble. You're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He says, to those of you who are victorious, I'll let you eat from the tree of life and you'll be with me in paradise. But to be victorious doesn't mean I'm always right. To be victorious doesn't mean that I'm making sure that people know what I believe. To be victorious is to take heart and recognize that Jesus is the victorious one. And he has overcome the world. And because he has, I can rest in his promises for me that I will have hope one day. I can rest in the promise that Jesus says at the end of Matthew, never will I leave you or forsake you. I can rest in the promise where he says, never will my love be separated from you because nothing can separate you from my love. I can rest in the promise of what Revelation here says to the church of Ephesus and, the church and, and to our church, to us today. We will be with him in paradise. And this word paradise is the same word that Jesus used with the thief on the cross. When the thief looks at him, he says, remember me. And Jesus looks back and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Thief on the cross, looked at Jesus, recognized who he was, turned and said, remember me. I want to be with you. And Jesus in return said, today you will be with me. And that's the same promise he gives us. Give your heart to Jesus. If you haven't today, I encourage and implore you. Give your heart to Jesus today. I'm going to end with three questions. And I want you to take one of these and, and during communion, we're going to have the, the team's going to come up and Pastor Steve's going to walk us through communion. And as the song's playing, obviously you can worship with them, but I want you to think through one of these three questions. I know like some of you are probably a little bit like my wife. She would look at all three and she would have like a 10 step action plan for each. And then she would crush it and do all the things because she's amazing. But I need to just like stop, slow down. It's like, okay, what's the one thing right now God is saying to me? And then what is he asking me to do about it? So question one, what does it look like for you to start the year off 2022 remembering who Jesus is? What character, aspect, and reality of who Jesus is do you need just to lift up, to see in your life? Revelation 1 is just, it's all over there. It's all, John, read the gospel of John. Man, just declares the goodness of who Jesus is. Second question, what priorities are misplaced in your life? Where is, where is, this is simply asking, where is God asking you to repent? as you've experienced kindness and the goodness of the character and the heart of God, where is he asking you to change? Where is he asking you to say, okay, stop living for yourself here. Start running after me here. To take the mindset of Paul who says for me, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. The fully surrendered life and soul. And the last question, what promises do you need to rest in during the season? What promises do you need to rest in during the season? Final encouragement. 
when we, yeah. When we have forsaken our first love, we are heading down a path that yes, Jesus doesn't desire for us, that God does not have for us. But ultimately what we're doing is we're missing out on what God has for us right now. There's a promise of abundant life, of peace, of joy. And we have love that is prioritized in our relationship with Jesus, heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we return to our first love, we experience the things that he's promised us here, now, and in the life to come. So return to Jesus today. Come back to him. Allow 2022, the start of this year, to be one where we come back to Jesus.